Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Good afternoon. Uh, please take your seats. Welcome to SACPA again. I'll be your, my name is Gene Olexen, and I'll be your moderator for today. Uh, just a quick few housekeeping rules. Uh, remember to turn off any devices that beep and whirl and everything else so we don't disturb the presentation. Also, uh, our session today, again, is $11 for lunch, which includes your speaker. A heck of a deal. Uh, just put it in the basket on your table and have someone count it. Just a reminder that uh, SACPAR is a volunteer nonprofit organization and relies on contributions of its members and att session attendees. Uh, if you're interested in purchasing a membership or making a donation, please see Lisa and Dan on my right. We'd like to thank our partners, the University of Lethbridge, for their support and distribution of notices, Country Kitchen Catering for Lunch, and Shaw TV and Lethbridge Herald for covering SACPA events. Our speaker today is Dr. Tom Johnson. Uh, Dr. Johnson took his, in, his uh, university education at the University of Guelph and the University of Waterloo and uh, a postdoctoral studies at the university, at the Massey University in New Zealand. Uh, I won't go into his extensive CV, but uh, his interest is, his areas of, of interest and in research are in the human dimensions of natural hazards. Please welcome Dr. Tom Johnson. problem. I will uh, proceed without the uh, visual portion uh, of, my, uh, of my presentation. Can, can everyone hear me okay at the back? Terrific. Well, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank you uh, very much for uh, inviting me uh, here today. Uh, my uh, interest in uh, floods and the flood hazards Flood hazard uh, actually goes uh, all the way back to my childhood. Uh, when uh, my father and grandfather moved off the, the family farm in 1947, uh, they built a, a home on a parcel of land that was owned by my, my grandfather's uh, uh, father-in-law. I'm not sure of the financial arrangements. They didn't talk about those things in those days. 
and it was right smack dab in the middle of the floodplain. Uh, so they moved off the farm in 47 in 1954. Hurricane Hazel, one of the worst natural disasters in Canadian history, hit, and uh, our house was uh, inundated uh, with floodwaters. And uh, by the time I was 10 years old, I was um, witnessing the rechanneling of the river that ran through my uh, small village. Uh, that river is called the Humber River, which enters into Lake Ontario, uh, just uh, west of downtown Toronto. So it's, um, uh, I've been interested in the flood hazard for an awfully long time. So in terms of my presentation today, I'm going to be uh, doing two things. I'm going to start with a, a very brief um, overview of the uh, 2013 uh, Alberta floods. I'm not going to be putting uh, this flood in the broader context uh, of, of other th uh, floods in the province, except to make uh, a very quick and dirty uh, reference uh, as a touch point to the 2005 flood. So I'm not going to be talking about the 95 flood and the 53 flood and, and, and so on and so forth. And then I'm going to present to you three propositions. Uh, you can think of these as, uh, they're not quite arguments because I don't really have time to develop an argument. They are, are, are propositions for you to think about. And I think it's really important that these ideas uh, be discussed in civil society because they are the sorts of things that we can think about when we start thinking about uh, holding our uh, political leaders uh, to a high standard of public service. The first proposition is that in the process of moving forward, we need to find ways to engage the public. Now, the throwaway word that many people would use here is a meaningful way, but I don't even know what that means. Uh, we need to engage the public in a theoretically informed way. There is a substantial body of theory and practice around public engagement, and we need to be aware of that, and we need to know whether or not uh, our public officials are engaging in the best practices possible. Secondly, with all apologies to engineers in the crowd, uh, we need to rely on more than engineering solutions alone. Uh, we need to complement the solutions that engineers can bring to the table uh, with um, uh, an examination of current policy and practice, not only governing uh, development on the floodplain, but I would argue, and I'm going to step out on a limb here, I would argue that we, it might well be time to rethink our whole planning process uh, here in, in the province. And finally, the third proposition is that the development authorities, so this is people, you know, folks like the, the city of Lethbridge, they, under the Municipal Government Act, have the responsibility to control development. They must have access to the most current and up-to-date information about the flood hazard uh, that, is, that is possible. Okay, so that's the brief outline. Let's, let's move along now. Brief overview of the uh, 2013 flood. Um, between the 19th of June and the 22nd of June, the uh, areas to the west and the southwest of Calgary uh, experienced an extremely uh, heavy rainfall event. Uh, the uh, Cochrane area, for example, in a 36-hour period starting on about the uh, 19th of June received over 200 millimeters of rain, which is just under half of its monthly average. It's a tremendous amount of rainfall. 
the, the uh, ground uh, in question was uh, already saturated, and as a result of that, the water scooted down uh, through the basin in, a, in fairly quick, quick order. The reason that, that the rainfall event occurred is because a low-pressure system coming across, well, looking from your direction, coming across from the Pacific Ocean, across the western Cordillera, which had dropped much of its precipitation, much of its uh, uh, moisture load uh, across the, uh, uh, the western Cordillera, uh, got stalled when it hit a high-pressure system that was stalled just to the uh, west of, uh, sorry, just to the east of Alberta. Now, if you know your, low, your, your basic synoptic weather, you know that low-pressure systems bring air in, and when those air, when those, uh, air currents swept across the prairies, they sucked up like a vacuum moisture from the ground, from soil moisture, and that replenished that uh, thirsty air mass. And, of course, you know, you know the story. When it reaches elevation, it cools, condenses, and falls as rain. That's grade 6. Uh, geography for you, at least in the old Ontario curriculum. <laughs> so that's the sort of the anatomy of it. So let's take a look at some of the consequences. At peak flow, the Bow River was flowing at five times its normal rate. The Elbow and the Highwood were flowing at ten times their normal rate for that time of year. Approximately 100,000 people were affected directly. States of emergency were declared in 28 communities, 30 communities in total were affected. Approximately 40,000, uh, I'm sorry, about 75,000 people were uh, temporarily evacuated from their homes. Approximately 40,000 people uh, were displaced for their home, from their homes for a longer period of time. By my estimate, and this doesn't come from anything official, by my estimate, perhaps as many as another half a million people were affected indirectly by the flood. And this relates to everybody from the folks who live on the higher ground in Calgary that couldn't get into the downtown core to work to uh, uh, people who were um, accommodating uh, people who were, were um, uh, moved from their homes. The damage estimates, I'm not sure how these things get done, but early on the province was talking about a $3 billion uh, bill. Uh, a risk analyst from the Bank of Montreal pegged it at somewhere between $3 billion and $5 billion. That places the 2013 flood right up there in the top five or so natural hazards in the history of Canada. Ranks right up there with Hurricane Hazel in '54. It ranks up there with the uh, with the '97 um, flood in the in the Red River. It ranks right up there with the '87 Saguenay flood uh, in Quebec. As of September 4th, uh, we try to be current. As of September 4th, 2013, 8,200 applications for disaster recovery had been had been submitted and 1,827 had been processed, um, totaling more than $8.6 million. Uh, this is where I would show you a really neat hydrograph that shows the, um, that shows the uh, peak. Now, why was Calgary so inundated? 
Well, partly it's the flow. But partly also, it's because Calgary, downtown Calgary, is located right smack dab in the middle of a floodplain. As, as is Medicine Hat, as is High River. Um, anyone who wishes to receive uh, an electronic copy of my presentation, please uh, send your uh, request to uh, Lisa and she can pass that on to me. I have a really nifty picture that I'd be showing you right now that shows from the Glenbow archives a picture from about 1880 showing the um, uh, Fort Calgary. Fort Calgary is located uh, pretty much at the confluence of the Bow River and the Elbow River, right across from the entrance to the Elbow, where the Elbow enters the Bow, is the Calgary Zoo. It's in a floodplain. It's obvious to anyone, uh, even with a little bit of training in, in geography, that that is an area that right, is right smack dab in a floodplain. So let's take a look at the provincial response to this. Well, on July 15th, uh, less than a month after the uh, flood event, the Minister of Municipal Affairs announces a new flood zone policy. And based on hydrologic mapping and flood hazard mapping, and I'll get to that in a little bit, we can identify three zones, or sorry, two zones. We can, we can identify uh, the floodway, so when you have a, an extreme natural event, uh, an input of lots of moisture, this is where the river is flowing at pace. So uh, for those of you who uh, this uh, June went down to look at the Old Man River, you could see it was flowing along at pace and it had overflown its regular, uh, its regular um, course. Beyond that is what's referred to as the flood fringe. And that's where water seeps out and it's not flowing along, it's not carrying material like houses that uh, we saw going through Bragg Creek and crashing through, uh, through the bridge there at Bragg Creek on the Elbow River. But this is where the water basically pools. And this is where we see these, you know, every flood, every flood we got to see somebody in a boat, right? A canoe or, uh, I mean, my goodness, it must be, there, there must be a checklist that uh, that reporters have, or that editors have, and they send their 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 photographers out. Speaking of which, uh, send their photographers out to get to get get the guy in the boat because it's a flood, and um, and and uh, that there you go. So under the new policy, and this is policy that is in lots of other places. Under the new policy, if you choose to rebuild in the floodway. Tough luck if there's another flood. Uh, don't come to the province asking for uh, money to rebuild, and uh, that's just the way it is. The province has just announced uh, an extra pot of money that will help purchase uh, properties uh, from people who wish to move out of the floodway. If you live in the flood zone, that's the seepage area, uh, you're eligible for drought or drought relief. That's another natural hazard. <laughs> the, uh, Ian Tyson has a great, great song. Uh, where you know, what, what do farmers in Alberta complain about? Water, either too much or too little. You know, not one way or the other. Uh, if you are in the flood fringe and you choose not to flood-proof your property, and we get another flood, 
tough luck. Now, this is a more formal statement. After the 1995 flood, Mr. Klein made a public statement that basically said the same thing, but it was not articulated quite so clearly, and it wasn't followed up upon uh, in, any kind of, in any kind of serious way. Um, so that's the, new, that's the new policy. The other thing that the provincial government has announced is a blue ribbon advisory panel. As if floods have never happened anywhere else in the world, a blue ribbon advisory panel to advise the government on what to do. The advisory panel consists of, uh, the, the leadership of the advisory panel consists of three uh, gentlemen, uh, very accomplished in their own ways, but it, it almost kind of sounds like a joke. Two engineers and an architect walk into a bar. <laughs> and you can continue on from there. So you get two engineers and an architect, well, you're going to get engineering responses in all likelihood. And certainly, uh, um, a, um, a news release came out uh, just, what's today? Just, it was on the 21st of July, uh, indicating that this blue ribbon, pa blue ribbon panel will be looking for the latest flood prevention technologies. So, um, uh, there you have it. Okay, so that's a bit of an overview of the flood and what we're faced with. Three propositions. Proposition one, the process by which we develop plans to mitigate the flood risk must engage the public. Well, that seems like milk toast. That seems like motherhood and apple pie. That seems so absolutely obvious that, you know, any, okay, let's do it. But there are different ways of doing it. 1969, a uh, paper was published in the American um, the Journal of the American Planning Association by, uh, written by a woman named Sherry Arnstein. It's called Arnstein's Ladder of Public Participation. And it is a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight uh, step ladder that at the bottom uh, we have governments engaging in manipulation uh, and perhaps not telling us everything that goes on. Maybe this involves an omnibus budget implementation bill. I don't know. <laughs> um, therapy. One of the other pictures that uh, people in the press uh, I'm sure are told to get by their... Um, uh, by their editors, and certainly they're told by the politicians' handlers to get, in addition to the guy in the canoe, um, is uh, the caring the, the, the caring politician over overlooking the uh, the disaster zone. And if you can put the premier, the uh, the uh, mayor of Calgary, and the pre and the and the prime minister of Canada all in the same helicopter at one time, flying over um, flying over. Uh, High River, that is absolute gold and will land you on the front page of lots of papers. So we've engaged in a lot of therapy and a lot of informing. We've not engaged at the higher levels of Arnstein's ladder of true public participation. We're being told what we can do and what we can't do in the floodplain, but people are not part of that discussion and not part of the process. It's purely now a technical exercise. The experts are going to come in and they're going to say, thou shalt not. And, um, uh, and the people who will be affected will probably not buy into the plan or the policy and won't understand why it's in place. So here are some things. This is a, a, a list of, 
of, of what you can do to, to engage in good public pr engagement practices. And there's lots of theory uh, and lots of literature on this, uh, in this area. Uh, I'm not convinced it's on the curriculum of any engineering programs that I know of, but it is in lots of geography and planning programs. So, first, one size in a public engagement process doesn't fit all. It's not like the scientific method where you have a certain steps that you go through. Or if you're an experimental scientist, then you can pretty much go through an experimental design, um, uh, setting up a project with, with your eyes closed because it's the same thing every time, just different sets of data, different hypotheses, different questions, and so on. One size does not fit all. Maybe what you need is workshops in some circumstances. Maybe in other circumstances you need open houses and public houses. Maybe in other circumstances you need what's called kitchen meetings. That's how the Reform Party got started. That's how Mr. Manning developed his grassroots of support is he went around the countryside, went around the country, and he met with people at kitchen tables over coffee, very small groups. Uh, very, very, very smart way to, to in, uh, develop an, uh, an, uh, a following and, and to engage folks. No single methodology or approach suits all circumstances. The second, the experts must be, must be willing to relinquish power. That's something. They must act in ways that facilitate rather than act as the authority. There is a, a great deal of uh, fantastic knowledge and information resident in most populations, in virtually every population. And it's a matter of harnessing that, identifying and harnessing. Participants need to be, this is a third point, participants in a public engagement process need to be as diverse as possible. Uh, the, the classic public meeting where people are sitting in the row in rows, the experts are at the front and people... People stand up, where's the microphone, and ask questions. That's not well-suited to all cultural groups. That's, ba that's a European style based on an adversarial system which informs our legal system. Um, so find ways to give groups who are typically marginalized a voice. Finally, those controlling the process must be, must be prepared to demonstrate why certain decisions are taken and why certain decisions are not taken. Because one of the things with the public engagement process is you can actually cultivate expectations. And you can cultivate the expectation that every voice, it's one thing for every voice to be heard, it's another thing for every voice to be represented in the final decision. That's a virtual impossibility. So you need to be able to demonstrate as, as one in control of this process how, how those various points of view have been taken into account, what the criteria were that were used, and so on. Okay, let's move on to the second one. We've got a couple more minutes left. We can't rely on engineering solutions alone. Well, I remember, I refer back to the Blue Ribbon Panel, uh, two engineers and an architect. And I think here, I think here to the experience in Ontario. Um, the first flood control dam ever built in Ontario was constructed in, 19, in Canada. I'm sorry, not just Ontario. In Canada, it was built in 1942 on the Grand River, upstream of Alora and Fergus, not far from Kitchener-Waterloo. The Grand River rises in the Dundalk Uplands, which is south-central Ontario, flows down through Kitchener-Waterloo, Cambridge, and into uh, Lake Erie. 
if you can picture that in your mind's eye. The Shan Dam was completed in 1942 as a result of a series of, uh, of uh, uh, floods that occurred during the 1930s, largely a result of land clearance due to agricultural expansion. The Grand River Conservation Authority, which eventually assumed control for this particular region, soon realized that engineering responses alone could not work, that they had to be complemented with um, changes to land use policies and to the planning process. So, pursuant to the Municipal Government Act in Alberta, which is responsible for, amongst other things, development of land, there are a set of regulations that are called the Subdivision and Development Regulations, and I want to read you Section 5 from those regulations because they're quite telling. It has to do with the subdivision of land. So you have a parcel of land, and you want to subdivide a parcel from that original parcel to create two legal parcels, say for building um, an acreage or something, or a, uh, a, a, a set of homes. The subdivision authorities, that's the development authority, that's the municipality, may require, it's written permissively, it's not written directively, may require an applicant to, for a subdivision to submit a... A map of the land that is subject to the application showing topographic contours at not greater than 1.5 meter intervals. Okay, so a topographic rendition, rendering. This is the real kicker. B, don't forget, may require. If the land that is subject to an application is located in a potential floodplain and the floodplain mapping is available, a map showing the 100-year flood line. That's a may. That's not a direct requirement. So I think, and I would encourage folks in this room and others to express, if you agree with me, to express these views to your MLA, that those kinds of regulations need to be rethought. And perhaps, just perhaps, we need greater provincial government oversight. When we relax, there's a saying in hockey, uh, what, what happens when you shoot at the net? Good things. Good things happen when you shoot at the net. So always given, given a choice, always shoot at the net. There, the the, the uh, flip side of that in terms of government oversight, in my view, and I'm very much a child of the 60s, I understand, is that when government oversight is lax, bad things happen. And if you don't believe me, you just think about Walkerton. More than 50% of the blame, 65% of the blame, if I remember correctly, was laid by Chief Justice Dennis O'Connor on the provincial government and relaxation of provincial oversight in water quality. I realize more government will get me elected and in southern Alberta just almost... I might as well say let's meter irrigation water too because that would get me elected just as fast, I'm sure. Uh, but nevertheless, when an official plan in Ontario, before it is implemented, it must be approved by the provincial government. We have no such provincial oversight here in Alberta. The final proposition. Now, there is, by the way, a review of the Municipal Government Act underway. 
So I think that that might be something you might want to pay some attention to. The final is authorities must have access to up-to-date information. Well, you know, I made reference to the floodway and the flood fringe and the floodplain and so on and so forth. These are developed, these are, 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 um, uh, are the result of hydrographic or not uh, hydrologic modeling, kind of stuff that my colleagues, uh, Stephen Kingsley in the geography department at U of L, uh, does. Well, in 1989, the Canadian government signed an agreement with the Alberta government to conduct flood risk mapping for 66 communities in Alberta. The federal government's uh, enthusiasm for that project waned by the 1990s. Read, there was no more, more, no more money available. And when the uh, federal government left the dance floor, so did the provincial government, more or less. By 2000, only 33 hazard maps had been completed for communities. Since then, only 49 in total. Some of the worst hit areas uh, in the 2013 floods have hazard maps that date from the 1990s. Now, why is that important? You need to think about a, a drainage basin, like the bow, like bow basin or the old man basin, as an integrated system, like a domino effect. And so if you have a great deal of land cover change, or a great deal of development in the upper reaches of the basin, Let's say you have a fire like the Lost Creek Fire in 2002, or you have the construction of lots of hard surfaces, roads for to facilitate resource extraction or, or uh, all-terrain vehicle traffic or whatever. You're going to alter the nature of the hydrologic response function. When you get when you get land cover change that is massive and rapid, you're going to change the hydrologic response function. In those basins, it's necessary that those flood maps be updated on a fairly regular basis. After the 2005 flood, I'll just finish with this, uh, the MLA for Highwood, uh, George Groeneveld, uh, issued a report. It was uh, submitted on November 10, 2006. It was not released publicly until 2012. And... In true government fashion, it was released on the Friday of a long, a long weekend in July. That's when things get done. Because we're all interested in these things on the long weekend in July, aren't we? Recommend, recommendation number one, that we complete the flood hazard studies for the communities we haven't completed them for. Recommendation number two, we recommend that the Alberta, Alberta environment develop a map maintenance program to ensure the flood risk maps are updated as appropriate. That was 2006. The director of the uh, Center for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, I know, just trips off the tongue, doesn't it? Um, uh, based at the University of Western Ontario, it's a, uh, uh, funded by the insurance company, so they have a, they have a stake, right? Um, uh, this fellow uh, was uh, reported, he was quoted in the newspaper in, uh, in the Toronto Pravda, otherwise known as the Globe, um, and I think on the People's Network too, which is what I call the CBC, uh, they, uh, that uh, had the Groeneveld uh, recommendations been implemented, 
then things might have turned out a little bit differently. Actually, he was more extreme than that, but I'm, I'm kind of conservative. Um, just want to finish off with this, a couple of comments by conclusion. First of all, the 2013 flood demonstrated once again yet how vulnerable we are to extreme natural events. Secondly, as we move forward, we should expect from our political leaders and others the following. A public engagement process that is grounded in best practices and informed by current theory. Two, structural responses that complemented by thoughtful changes to existing policy and practices. And And three, delineation of flood hazard zones must be done on the basis of analysis that is current as possible. There's a saying in modeling called GIGO in mathematical modeling or simulation modeling. It stands for garbage in, garbage out. If the information you put into a mathematical model is garbage, the information you're going to get out is garbage. And if we don't have flood hazard zone maps that are up to date and current, then we're going to be building in highly vulnerable places, even if we do implement the 100-year flood line regulation. And with that, thank you. Thank you.